If Frank Churchill had wanted to see his father, he would have contrived it between September and January. A man at his age, what is he, three or four and twenty, cannot be without the means of doing as much as that. It is impossible. That's easily said and easily felt by you, who have always been your own master. You are the worst judge in the world, Mr. Knightley, of the difficulties of dependence. You do not know what it is to have tempers to manage. Hey you, welcome back to Another World Audiobook. So glad to have you here. I am, uh, <laughs> we're doing two chapters here today. Um, they're, yeah, just some of the image chapters are a little short. Uh, I usually try and keep, you know, the episodes about this length, so uh, I hope you enjoy a, a little twofer here today as we carry on with the story of Emma. If you guys are enjoying this, I would really, really, really appreciate it if you would uh, let me know. Just, uh, if, you know, leaving a review can be a bit of a hassle sometimes, but give it a try. Uh, a lot of new podcast players, if you're on CastBox and uh, I think even Spotify, a lot, of the, a lot of them make it a lot easier, so iTunes used to be really complicated and annoying to try and leave a review on, but now it's a lot simpler, so uh, if you wouldn't mind leaving me a review that would be so helpful it just lets me know that we're doing a good job uh, but like I mentioned I think it was last week um, I would really love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or ideas for how we can improve the podcast always looking to make this more valuable to you uh, so that hopefully you know one day you'll buy a piece of merch you'll uh, you know throw some uh, uh, patreon stuff our way if you want to do that great if not we'll keep making you free audiobooks all we ask is that you share it spread the word let other people know about the podcast all right let's get into it now without further ado I give you the next two chapters Oh, Emma. Chapter 18 Mr. Frank Churchill did not come. When the time proposed drew near, Mrs. Weston's fears were justified in the arrival of a letter of excuse. For the present, he could not be spared, to his very great mortification and regret, but still he looked forward with the hope of coming to Randall's at no distant period. Mrs. Weston was exceedingly disappointed, much more disappointed, in fact, than her husband, though her dependence on seeing the young man had been so much more sober. But a sanguine temper, though for ever expecting more good than occurs, does not always pay for its hope by any proportionate depression. It soon flies over the present failure and begins the hope again. For half an hour, Mr. Weston was surprised and sorry, but then he began to perceive that Frank's coming two or three months later would be a much better plan, better time of year, better weather, and that he would be able, without any doubt, to stay considerably longer with them than if he had come sooner. These feelings rapidly restored his comfort, while Mrs. Weston, of a more apprehensive disposition, foresaw nothing but a repetition of excuses and delays and after all her concern for what her husband was to suffer, suffered a great deal more herself. Emma was not at this time in a state of spirits to care really about Mr. Frank Churchill's not coming, except as a disappointment at Randall's. The acquaintance at present had no charm for her. She wanted, rather, to be quiet and out of temptation. But still, as it was desirable that she should appear in general, like her usual self, she took care to express as much interest in the circumstance, and enter as warmly into Mr. and Mrs. Weston's disappointment as might naturally belong to their friendship. She was the first to announce it to Mr. Knightley, and exclaimed quite as much as was necessary, or being acting a part, perhaps rather more, at the conduct of the Churchills in keeping him away. She then proceeded to say a good deal more than she felt of the advantage of such an addition to their confined society in Surrey. 
the pleasure of looking at somebody new, the Galladay to Highbury and Tyre, which the sight of him would have made, and ending with reflections on the Churchills again, found herself directly involved in a disagreement with Mr. Knightley, and, to her great amusement, perceived that she was taking the other side of the question from her real opinion, and making use of Mrs. Weston's arguments against herself. "'The Churchills are very likely in fault,' said Mr. Knightley coolly. "'But I dare say he might come if he would.' "'I do not know why you should say so. He wishes exceedingly to come, but his uncle and aunt will not spare him.' I cannot believe that he has not the power of coming, if he made a point of it. It is too unlikely for me to believe it without proof. How odd you are! What has Mr. Frank Churchill done to make you suppose him such an unnatural creature? I am not supposing him at all an unnatural creature, in suspecting that he may have learned to be above his connections, and to care very little for anything but his own pleasure, from living with those who have always set him the example of it, it is a great deal more natural than one could wish that a young man, brought up by those who are proud, luxurious, and selfish, should be proud, luxurious, and selfish too. If Frank Churchill had wanted to see his father, he would have contrived it between September and January. A man at his age, what is he, three or four and twenty, cannot be without the means of doing as much as that. It is impossible. That's easily said, and easily felt by you, who have always been your own master. You are the worst judge in the world, Mr. Knightley, of the difficulties of dependence. You do not know what it is to have tempers to manage. It is not to be conceived that a man of three or four and twenty should not have liberty of mind or limb to that amount. He cannot want money. He cannot want leisure. We know, on the contrary, that he has so much of both that he is glad to get rid of them at the idlest haunts in the kingdom. We hear of him for ever at some watering place or other. A little while ago he was at Weymouth. This proves that he can leave the Churchills. Yes, sometimes he can. And those times are whenever he thinks it worth his while, whenever there is any temptation or pleasure. It is very unfair to judge of anybody's conduct without an intimate knowledge of their situation. Nobody who has not been in the interior of a family can say what the difficulties of any individual of that family may be. We ought to be acquainted with Enscombe and with Mrs. Churchill's temper before we pretend to decide upon what her nephew can do. He may at times be able to do a great deal more than he can at others. There is one thing, Emma, which a man can always do if he chooses, and that is his duty. Not by manoeuvring and finessing, but by vigour and resolution. It is Frank Churchill's duty to pay his attention to his father. He knows it to be so, by his promises and messages. But if he wished to do it, it might be done. A man who felt rightly would say at once, simply and resolutely to Mrs. Churchill, Every sacrifice of mere pleasure you will always find me ready to make at your convenience, but I must go and see my father immediately. I know he would be hurt by me failing in such a mark of respect to him on the present occasion. I shall therefore set off tomorrow. If he would say so to her at once, in the tone of decision becoming a man, there would be no opposition made to his going. No, said Emma, laughing, but perhaps there might be made some of his coming back again. Such language for a young man entirely dependent to use. Nobody but you, Mr. Knightley, would imagine it possible. 
but you have not an idea of what is requisite in situations directly opposite to your own. Mr. Frank Churchill, to be making such a speech as that to the uncle and aunt who have brought him up and are to provide for him, standing up in the middle of the room, I suppose, and speaking as loud as he could. How can you imagine such conduct practicable? Depend upon it, Emma. A sensible man would find no difficulty in it. He would feel himself in the right, and the declaration, made, of course, as a man of sense would make it, in a proper manner, would do him more good, raise him higher, fix his interests stronger with the people he depended on, than all that a line of shifts and expedients can ever do. Respect would be added to affection. They would feel that they could trust him, that the nephew who had done rightly by his father would do rightly by them. For they know, as well as he does, as well as all the world must know, that he ought to pay his visit to his father, and while meanly exerting their power to delay it, are in their hearts not thinking the better of him for submitting to their whims. Respect for right conduct is felt by everybody. If he would act in this sort of manner, on principle, consistently, regularly, their little minds would bend to his. I rather doubt that. You are very fond of bending little minds. But where little minds belong to rich people in authority, I think they have a knack for swelling out, till they are quite as unmanageable as great ones. I can imagine that if you, as you are, Mr. Knightley, were to be transported and placed all at once in Mr. Frank Churchill's situation, you would be able to say and do just what you have been recommending for him, and it might have a very good effect. The Churchills might not have a word to say in return, but then you would have no habits of early obedience and long observance to break through. To him who has, it might not be so easy to burst forth at once into perfect independence and set all their claims on his gratitude and reward at naught. He may have as strong a sense of what would be right as you can have, but without being so equal under particular circumstances to act up to it. Then it would not be so strong a sense. If it failed to produce equal exertion, it could not be an equal conviction. Oh, the difference of situation and habit. I wish you would try to understand what an amiable young man may be likely to feel in directly opposing those whom, as a child and boy, he has been looking up to all his life. Our amiable young man is a very weak young man, if this be the first occasion of his carrying through a resolution to do right against the will of others. It ought to have been a habit with him by this time, of following his duty, instead of consulting expediency. I can allow for the fears of the child, but not of the man. As he became rational, he ought to have roused himself, and shaken off all that was unworthy in their authority. He ought to have opposed the first attempt on their side to make him slight his father. Had he begun as he ought, there would have been no difficulty now. We shall never agree about him, cried Emma but that is nothing extraordinary. I have not the least idea of his being a weak young man. I feel sure that he is not. Mr. Weston would not be blind to folly, though in his own son, but he is very likely to have a more yielding, complying, mild disposition than would suit your notions of man's perfection. I dare say he has, and though it may cut him off from some advantages, it will secure him many others. Yes, all the advantages of sitting still when he ought to move, and of leading a life of mere idle pleasure, and fancying himself extremely expert in finding excuses for it. 
he can sit down and write a fine, flourishing letter, full of professions and falsehoods, and persuade himself that he has hit upon the very best method in the world of preserving peace at home and preventing his father's having any right to complain. His letters disgust me. Your feelings are singular. They seem to satisfy everybody else. I suspect they do not satisfy Mrs. Weston. They hardly can satisfy a woman of her good sense and quick feelings. Standing in a mother's place, but without a mother's affection to blind her, it is on her account that attention to Randall's is doubly due, and she must doubly feel the omission. Had she been a person of consequence herself, he would have come, I dare say, and it would not have signified whether he did or no. Can you think your friend behindhand in these sort of considerations? Do you suppose she does not often say all this to herself? No, Emma, your amiable young man can be very amiable only in French, not in English. He may be very amiable, have very good manners, and be very agreeable, but he can have no English delicacy towards the feelings of other people, nothing really amiable about him. You seem determined to think ill of him. Me? Not at all, replied Mr. Knightley, rather displeased. I do not want to think ill of him. I should be as ready to acknowledge his merits as any other man, but I hear of none, except what are merely personal, that he is well-grown and good-looking, with smooth, plausible manners. Well, if he have nothing else to recommend him, he will be a treasure at Highbury. We do not often look upon fine young men, well-bred and agreeable. We must not be nice and ask for all the virtues into the bargain. Cannot you imagine, Mr. Knightley, what a sensation his coming will produce? There will be but one subject throughout the parishes of Donwell and Highbury, but one interest, one object of curiosity. It will be all Mr. Frank Churchill. We shall think and speak of nobody else. You will excuse my being so much overpowered. If I find him conversable, I shall be glad of his acquaintance. But if he is only a chattering coxcomb, he will not occupy much of my time or thoughts. My idea of him is that he can adapt his conversation to the taste of everybody, and has the power, as well as the wish, of being universally agreeable. To you he will talk of farming, to me of drawing and music, and so on to everybody, having that general information on all subjects which will enable him to follow the lead, or take the lead, just as propriety may require, and to speak extremely well on each. That is my idea of him. And mine, said Mr. Knightley warmly, is that if he turn out anything like it, he will be the most insufferable fellow breathing. What, at three-and-twenty, to be the king of his company, the great man, the practised politician, who is to read everybody's character, and make everybody's talents conduce to the display of his own superiority, to be dispensing his flatteries around, that he may make all appear like fools compared with himself. My dear Emma, your own good sense could not endure such a puppy when it came to the point. I will say no more about him, cried Emma. You turn everything to evil. We are both prejudiced. You against, I for him. And we have no chance of agreeing till he is really here. Prejudiced? I am not prejudiced. But I am very much, and without being at all ashamed of it. My love for Mr. and Mrs. Weston gives me a decided prejudice in his favour. 
He is a person I never think of from one month's end to another, said Mr. Knightley, with a degree of vexation which made Emma immediately talk of something else, though she could not comprehend why he should be angry. To take a dislike to a young man only because he appeared to be of a different disposition from himself was unworthy the real liberality of mind which he was always used to acknowledge in him, for with all the high opinion of himself, which she had often laid to his charge, she had never before for a moment supposed that it could make him unjust to the merit of another. Volume 2 Chapter 1 Emma and Harriet had been walking together one morning, and, in Emma's opinion, had been talking enough of Mr. Elton for that day. She could not think that Harriet's solace or her own sins required more, and she was therefore industriously getting rid of the subject as they returned. But it burst out again when she thought she had succeeded, and after speaking some time of what the poor must suffer in winter, and receiving no other answer than a very plaintive, "'Mr. Elton is so good to the poor.' she found something else must be done. They were just approaching the house where lived Mrs. and Miss Bates. She determined to call upon them and seek safety in numbers. There was always sufficient reason for such attentions. Mrs. and Miss Bates loved to be called on, and she knew she was considered by the very few who presumed ever to see imperfection in her as rather negligent in that respect, and as not contributing what she ought to the stock of their scanty comforts. She had had many a hint from Mr. Knightley, and some from her own heart, as to her deficiency, but none were equal to counteract the persuasion of its being very disagreeable, a waste of time, tiresome women, and all the horror of being in danger of falling in with the second-rate and third-rate of Highbury, who were calling on them for ever, and therefore she seldom went near them. But now she made the sudden resolution of not passing their door without going in, observing, as she proposed it to Harriet, that, as well as she could calculate, they were just now quite safe from any letter from Jane Fairfax. The house belonged to people in business. Mrs. and Miss Bates occupied the drawing-room floor, and there, in the very moderate-sized apartment, which was everything to them, the visitors were most cordially and even gratefully welcomed. The quiet, neat old lady, who, with her knitting, was seated in the warmest corner, wanting even to give up her place to Miss Woodhouse and her more active, talking daughter, and was ready to overpower them with care and kindness, thanks for their visit, solicitude for their shoes, anxious inquiries after Mr. Woodhouse's health, cheerful communications about her mother's, and sweet cake from the buffet. Mrs. Cole had just been there, just called in for ten minutes, and had been so good as to sit an hour with them, and she had taken a piece of cake, and been so kind as to say she liked it very much, and therefore she hoped Miss Woodhouse and Miss Smith would do them the favour to eat a piece too. The mention of the Coles was sure to be followed by that of Mr. Elton. There was intimacy between them, and Mr. Cole had heard from Mr. Elton since his going away. Emma knew what was coming. They must have the letter over again, and settle how long he had been gone, and how much he was engaged in company, and what a favourite he was wherever he went, and how full the master of the ceremony's ball had been. And she went through it very well, with all the interest and all the commendation that could be requisite, and always putting forward to prevent Harriet's being obliged to say a word. 
This she had been prepared for when she entered the house, but meant, having once talked him handsomely over, to be no farther incommoded by any troublesome topic, and to wander at large amongst all the mistresses and misses of Highbury, and their card-parties. She had not been prepared to have Jane Fairfax succeed Mr. Elton, but he was actually hurried off by Miss Bates. She jumped away from him at last abruptly to the coals, to usher in a letter from her niece. "'Oh, yes, Mr. Elton, I understand. Certainly as to dancing. Mrs. Cole was telling me that dancing at the rooms at Bath was—' "'Mrs. Cole was so kind as to sit some time with us, talking of Jane, for as soon as she came in, she began inquiring after her. Jane is so very great a favourite there. Whenever she is with us, Mrs. Cole does not know how to shew her kindness enough, and I must say that Jane deserves it as much as anybody can.' And so she began inquiring after her directly, saying, "'I know you cannot have heard from Jane lately, because it is not her time for writing.' And then I immediately said, "'But indeed we have. We had a letter this morning. I do not know that I ever saw anybody more surprised.' "'Have you, upon your honour? said she. "'Well, that is quite unexpected. Do let me hear what she says.' Emma's politeness was at hand directly, to say, with smiling interest, "'Have you heard from Miss Fairfax so lately? "'I am extremely happy. "'I hope she is well.' "'Thank you. "'You are so kind,' replied the happily deceived aunt, "'while eagerly hunting for the letter. "'Oh, here it is. "'I was sure it could not be far off. "'But I had put my housewife upon it, you see, "'without being aware, and so it was quite hid. "'But I had it in my hands so very lately "'that I was almost sure it must be on the table.' I was reading it to Mrs. Cole, and since she went away I was reading it again to my mother, for it is such a pleasure to her, a letter from Jane, that she can never hear it often enough, so I knew it could not be far off, and here it is, only just under my housewife, and since you are so kind as to wish to hear what she says, but first of all I really must, in justice to Jane, apologise for her writing so short a letter, only two pages, you see, hardly two, and in general she fills the whole paper and crosses half. My mother often wonders that I can make it out so well. She often says when the letter is first opened, Well, Hetty, now I think you will be put to it to make out all that checker work, don't you, ma'am? And then I tell her I am sure she would contrive to make it out herself if she had anybody to do it for her. Every word of it, I am sure she would pour over it till she made out every word. And indeed, though my mother's eyes are not so good as they were, she can see amazingly well still. Thank God, with help of spectacles. It is such a blessing. My mothers are really very good indeed. Jane often said when she was here, I am sure, Grandma." you must have had strong eyes to see as you do and so much fine work as you have done too i only wish my eyes may last me as well all this spoken extremely fast obliged miss bates to stop for breath and emma said something very civil about the excellence of miss fairfax's handwriting you are extremely kind replied miss bates highly gratified "'You, who are such a judge, and write so beautifully yourself, "'I'm sure there is nobody's praise that could give us so much pleasure as Miss Woodhouse's. "'My mother does not hear. She is a little deaf, you know. "'Ma'am,' addressing her, "'do you hear what Miss Woodhouse is so obliging to say about Jane's handwriting?' "'And Emma had the advantage of hearing her own silly compliment repeated twice over "'before the good old lady could comprehend it.' 
She was pondering, in the meanwhile, upon the possibility, without seeming very rude, of making her escape from Jane Fairfax's letter, and had almost resolved on hurrying away directly under some slight excuse, when Miss Bates turned to her again and seized her attention. "'My mother's deafness is very trifling, you see, just nothing at all. By only raising my voice and saying anything two or three times over, she is sure to hear. But then she is used to my voice. But it is very remarkable that she should always hear Jane better than she does me. Jane speaks so distinct. However, she will not find her grammar more at all deafer than she was two years ago, which is saying a great deal at my mother's time of life. And it really is two full years, you know, since she was here. We never were so long without seeing her before, and as I was telling Mrs. Cole, we hardly know how to make enough of her now. Are you expecting Miss Fairfax here soon? Oh, yes, next week. Indeed, that must be a very great pleasure. Thank you, you are very kind. Yes, next week, everybody is so surprised, and everybody says the same obliging things. I am sure she will be as happy to see her friends at Highbury as they can be to see her, yes, Friday or Saturday. She cannot say which, because Colonel Campbell will be wanting the carriage himself one of those days, so very good of them to send her the whole day. But they always do, you know. Oh, yes, Friday or Saturday next. That is what she writes about. That is the reason of her writing out of rule, as we call it, for in the common course, we should not have heard from her before next Tuesday or Wednesday. Yes, so I imagined. I was afraid there could be little chance of my hearing anything of Miss Fairfax today. So obliging of you. No, we should not have heard if it had not been for this particular circumstance of her being to come here so soon. My mother is so delighted, for she is to be three months with us, at least three months, she says, so positively, as I am going to have the pleasure of reading to you. The case is, you see, that the Campbells are going to Ireland. Mrs. Dixon has persuaded her father and mother to come over and see her directly. They had not intended to go over till the summer, but she is so impatient to see them again, for till she married last October, she was never away from them so much as a week, which must make it very strange to be in different kingdoms. I was going to say, but however different countries, and so she wrote a very urgent letter to her mother, or her father, and declare I do not know which it was, but we shall see presently in Jane's letter, wrote in Mr. Dixon's name, as well as her own, to press their coming over directly, as they would give their meeting in Dublin, and take them back to their country seat, Ballycraig, a beautiful place. I fancy Jane has heard a great deal of its beauty, from Mrs. Dixon, I mean. I do not know that she ever heard of it from anybody else, but it was very natural, you know that he should like to speak of his own place while he was paying his dresses, and as Jane used to be very often walking out with them, for Colonel and Mrs. Campbell were very particular about their daughters not walking out often with only Mr. Dixon, for which I do not at all blame them. Of course she heard everything she might be telling Miss Campbell about her own home in Ireland, and I think she wrote us word that she had shown them some drawings of the place, views that he had taken himself. He is a most amiable, charming young man, I believe. Jane was quite longing to go to Ireland from his account of things. At this moment, an ingenious and animating suspicion entering Emma's brain with regard to Jane Fairfax, this charming Mr. Dixon, and not going to Ireland, she said with the insidious design of farther discovery, "'You must feel it very fortunate that Miss Fairfax should be allowed to come to you at such a time. Considering the very particular friendship between her and Mrs. Dixon, you could hardly have expected her to be excused from accompanying Colonel and Mrs. Campbell.' 
Very true, very true indeed. The very thing that we have always been rather afraid of, for we should not have liked to have her at such a distance from us for months together, not able to come if anything was to happen. But you see, everything turns out for the best. They want her, Mr. and Mrs. Dixon, excessively to come over with Colonel and Mrs. Campbell. Quite depend upon it. Nothing can be more kind or pressing than their joint invitation, Jane says, as you will hear presently. Mr. Dixon does not seem in the least backward in any attention. He has most charming young man ever since the service he rendered jane at weymouth when they were out in that party on the water and she by the sudden whirling round or something or other the sails would have been dashed into the sea at once and actually was all but gone if he had not with the greatest presence of mind got hold of a habit i shall never think of it without trembling but ever since we have had the history of that day i have been so fond of mr dixon but in spite of all her friend's urgency and her own wish of seeing Ireland, Miss Fairfax prefers devoting the time to you and Mrs. Bates. Yes, entirely her own doing, entirely her own choice, and Colonel and Mrs. Campbell think she does quite right, just what they should recommend, and indeed they particularly wish her to try her native air, as she has not been quite so well as usual lately. I am concerned to hear of it. I think they judge wisely. But Mrs. Dixon must be very disappointed. Mrs. Dixon, I understand, has no remarkable degree of personal beauty, is not by any means to be compared with Miss Fairfax. Oh, no, you are very obliging to say such things, but certainly not. There is no comparison between them. Miss Campbell always was absolutely plain, but extremely elegant and amiable. Yes, that of course. Jane caught a bad cold, poor thing, so long ago as the 7th of November, as I am going to read to you, and has never been well since. A long time is it not for a cold to hang upon her. She never mentioned it before, because she would not alarm us, just like her, so considerate. But, however, she is so far from well, that her kind friends the Campbells think she had better come home and try an air that always agrees with her, and they have no doubt that three or four months at Highbury will entirely cure her, and it is certainly a great deal better that she should come here than go to Ireland if she is unwell. Nobody could nurse her as we should do. It appears to me the most desirable arrangement in the world. And so she is to come to us next Friday or Saturday, and the Campbells leave town in their way to Hollyhead the Monday following, as you will find from Jane's letter. So sudden, you may guess, dear Miss Woodhouse, what a flurry it has thrown me in, if it was not for the drawback of her illness. But I am afraid we must expect to see her grown thin and looking very poorly. I must tell you what an unlucky thing happened to me as to that. I always make a point of reading Jane's letters through to myself first, before I read them aloud to my mother, you know, for fear of there being anything in them to distress her. Jane desired me to do it, so I always do, and so I began today with my usual caution, but no sooner did I come to the mention of her being unwell than I burst out quite frightened with, Bless me, poor Jane is ill, which my mother, being on the watch, heard distinctly, and was sadly alarmed at. However, when I read on, and I found that it was not near so bad as I had fancied at first, and I made so light of it now to her that she does not think much about it, but I cannot imagine how I could be so off my guard. If Jane does not get well soon, we will call in Mr. Perry. The expense shall not be thought of, and though he is so liberal and so fond of Jane that I dare say he would not mean to charge anything for attendance, we could not suffer it to be so, you know. He has a wife and family to maintain, and is not to be giving away his time. Well, now, I have just given you a hint of what Jane writes about. We will turn to her letter, and I am sure she tells her own story a great deal better than I can tell it for her. I am afraid we must be running away, said Emma glancing at Harriet, and beginning to rise. "'My father will be expecting us. 
I had no intention. I thought I had no power of staying more than five minutes when I first entered the house. I merely called because I would not pass the door without inquiring after Mrs. Bates. But I have been so pleasantly detained. Now, however, we must wish you and Mrs. Bates good morning. And not all that could be urged to detain her succeeded. She regained the street, happy in this. That, though much had been forced on her against her will, though she had in fact heard the whole substance of Jane Fairfax's letter, she had been able to escape the letter itself. Alrighty, sorry if this is confusing at all that there's multiple chapter ones. <laughs> I don't know why this book is divided up into volumes. It's not that long, but uh, yeah, so this was, uh, we just finished volume one and we just started volume two and then uh, we'll go all the way through volume two and then there's a volume three. So we'll have three chapter ones, um, which is kind of confusing, but hopefully it doesn't confuse you too much since they're all in order here in your podcast player. Uh, you're welcome. All right, thanks guys so much for listening. Uh, like I said, just share the show if you know anybody who would enjoy a free audiobook and I'm guessing that you do because i mean come on let's let's get real who wouldn't enjoy a free audiobook thank you guys so much for listening we will talk to you next week this is carl hi carl needs a website for his business i sell the world's finest flavored toothpicks but sadly for carl he doesn't know all the techie complicated website stuff so he's just out of luck and his business is doomed to fail in this digital age of um actually i got my website set up super fast and easy with invicta.services you what? Yeah, it was super easy. I just picked the style I liked, made a few quick, simple customizations, and bam! Awesome website where I can sell my flavored toothpicks. Well, that's, well... Amazing? I was going to say, probably expensive. Actually, getting a website with Invicta starts at only $24 per month. $24 per month? That's less than what I spend on vocal creams per month. It's awesome. It gets you website hosting, a beautiful, professionally designed, customizable template, ongoing site maintenance, regular WordPress plugin, and template updates. I don't say this often. But, wow. I know, right? Invicta.services, a simple, affordable way to get a beautiful, professional website for your business. Just go to Invicta.services to launch your website today. That's Invicta, I-N-V-I-C-T-A dot services. Invicta.services, a professional website, headache-free. And just for Another World Audiobooks listeners, go to Invicta.services and then enter the code ANOTHERWORLD to get your first month free. That's right, go to Invicta.services and enter ANOTHERWORLD as your coupon code to get an entire month free and get started with your professional website at Invicta.services.